0: Welcome to another episode of The Myths That Make Us podcast. If I'm doing my job, by the time this podcast comes out, uh, my trip report will have already come out. Um, but now the fact that I said that, I'm putting pressure on Graham and I, and I don't like it, but it needs to be done because I did ayahuasca five weeks ago. It was transformative. I took six days to write it all out. It ended up being like 62 pages or something like that. And um, it's been really key and important in what's been unfolding for me since then. And I wrote it for you guys. And I just haven't sat down and made myself speak the words into the microphone so it can be recorded so you guys can hear it. Uh, so I will do that. But in the meantime, uh, this is a new episode of The Myth That Makes Podcast with Ronnie Landis. Um, I met Ronnie uh here in austin um at a local spot where we go to do sauna and ice bath called kuya and um the, there was an instant resonance but i didn't know anything about him and then he came to a fit for service event and he gave me uh one of his 12 books that he's written when I, that which i did not know until he talked about it on the podcast i was like holy shit. I've tried to write five different books and I haven't written any of them. So good job. They're hard. But his most recent book is called The Addiction-Free Lifestyle. And a lot of people give me their self-published books. And a lot of people forever become people that I'm uncomfortable being around because I'm not yet healed. And I haven't read their book that they gave me. And I feel like I've done something wrong to them. Cause A lot of them just don't resonate with me. But I opened his and I started to skim it. And I was like, this is fucking dope. This is dope in a way where uh, I feel bad (laughs) for putting him in the box of basically everyone who... um, This is just a public service announcement for people out there. If your friend doesn't ask you for your book that you've just published... Think about what you're doing when you give it to them. In 2022, in the age of more information per second being created than entire centuries were able to create information, uh, I'm going to give you the burden of having read my book that you didn't ask for. And it's going to be on my mind and your mind every time that we talk about my life or my book or my ideas that come from my book. And uh, Graham, is this going off the rails or is this? (laughs) Oh man, it's funny Uh, because I aspire one day to write books. um, Whatever domain that we are called to perform within, you best believe that you've downloaded the do's and don'ts of that domain and they haunt you. And they rule over you and they create nightmares for you. And a big part of your work is to learn how to move through them in a way where you don't abandon them because then you're not going to be able to play the game well of whatever domain that you're in. But anyways, um, he wrote a book and it's good. And so I asked him to come on the podcast. <laughs> Graham, we're keeping it all in. Um, the conversation was awesome. Uh, we ended up talking collectively. We did his podcast and then my podcast back to back. We ended up talking for like four hours almost. And uh, don't normally do that. It's pretty good. Um, this is a specifically interesting podcast if you're a ex athlete or a current athlete, or if you've pursued mastery in any specific domain. Um, he and I. Got deep into that as one does with a, uh, nearly Olympic performing, uh, third degree black belts who also then just pivoted because he chose love over his sensei, which is, it's a true story. You'll hear it, uh, started to play basketball. And then after two years, uh, was about to go to a D league tryout for the Golden State Warriors D league team. So. Yeah, he's a badass, and we got into some interesting stuff. I think that you'll enjoy it. As always, if you want to support, really if you just want to stay connected to what I'm doing, um, check out my newsletter at ericgazzy.com. It's called Feasting Fridays. Share whatever is most alive, along with whatever song I'm playing on repeat to the chagrin. I don't know if anyone says chagrin, but to the lamentation, I don't know if anyone says lamentation, but to the disarray of Graham's nervous system, uh, he just has to hear me play the same song on repeat for like six days. And I think he pretends either not to notice or not to mind, but it's got to suck. But I think he does a good job. Yeah, so if you want to stay connected to the podcast, Um, if you just want to stay connected to what I'm doing, that's where I'm most consistent. And thank you again for offering your time and your attention. Without further ado, here is Ronnie Smith. Ronnie, we just did about two hours on your podcast and we're going straight in uh, for you coming on my podcast. First, I just want to say thank you for having me on. Uh, That's some of the most flow, I don't get to do podcasts in person often. Um, And when I do do them in person, it's almost always there on my podcast. And there's a flow that Mm -hmm. can only seem to happen when you're in person. And so it was really nice to be the one having questions asked of Mm -hmm. and to be able to get that flow in person. So I just want to say thank you for providing that container. That was dope. Uh, Those two hours went by quick. Yeah. and also I told you on your podcast, but I want to re redo it on my podcast, but congratulations on the book that you wrote. Um, like I said, on your podcast, I have a lot of people who will give me the book that they self-published and it feels like a burden, to be mm-hmm. honest, mm-hmm. on me. Like it feels mm-hmm. like, fuck, now for the rest of my relationship <laughs> with this person, they're going to somewhere mm-hmm. be like, did you read my book? Mm-hmm. And my answer is going to be no. Um, <laughs> But as soon as I opened your book, I was like, oh shit, (laughs) this is, all right, I don't know if I should get into this, but um, I have been culturally wounded in such the right way where I expect a certain font size Mm -hmm. and for, if the font's super big, it doesn't really feel real to me, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So like there are implicit assumptions that i have for how a book should look to feel like a book and it feels like those heuristics are around how much work was put into the book right and so like if the font's really large or if it's super small like if it's a book of poetry that's one thing but mm-hmm. if anyways it was dope really enjoyed it um i haven't finished it but i was genuinely like at times i forgot that i was reading a friend's book mm-hmm. and i think that that's mm-hmm. the like mm-hmm. That's the hallmark of like, Mm. oh, they did the thing. (laughs) This is so, okay. I I love this. This is amazing. (laughs) So (laughs) my therapist, um, I have a very cool therapist. I won't share his name because what I'm about to tell you that we did together is illegal. But uh, he like held space for a very deep mushroom Mm. uh, ceremony that we did where he was able to like help me weave the year of psychotherapy that we mm. basically did in that experience I haven't thought about this until just now um but there was a moment in the middle of my experience like I had my blindfold on like the whole time where a quality of song came on that was so distinctly not quite as good as all the other songs where I could I was feeling like this is one of his friend's songs mm. and he likes his friend. So he likes this song, but I don't like this song. Mm. <laughs> like I do not like this song. And there's like, my roommate is an audio engineer. And like, there's uh, two people who aren't technically proficient in that. There's like an artistry to make the music feel full that if you don't know how to do it, it's just not there in your ear, even though you don't know what you're not hearing, you can hear that there's something not quite there. Um, So I forgot that I was listening to music and I started to like feel like, I started to judge it because it didn't feel like it wasn't just a part of my experience.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: After the fact, when we were eating fruit and I was still giggling, but I could like talk, I was like, that song that you played, was that made by a friend of yours? And he was like shocked. And he was like, actually, yeah, blah, blah, blah. So I just shared that story where if something is really good, it enters into the category in our mind of that thing. So of music or of book, and I've read a lot of books. Um, And if it's not quite good enough, it feels like, Mm, oh, my mm -hmm, friend made this, mm -hmm. you know? Um, And so I could feel that as I read your book, it kind of flipped into that next form so anyways thank you for coming on to the podcast (laughs) thank you for that uh, i appreciate that
1: (laughs) and i know exactly what you mean too beautiful
0: (laughs) um we're just going to get right into it because i've been talking to you for two hours and i feel like Mm -hmm. we already got the flow um my favorite question to start kind of the form of the podcast Mm -hmm. is uh what do you remember as your first memory
1: my first memory was of bruce lee so when I was four years old, and I talk about this a lot, I it was of the movie Enter the Dragon. And this is literally the first conscious memory I have, uh, which says a lot about the journey of my life as a martial artist, because I was put into martial arts um, when I was about four or five, and I just remember... It's well, like
0: what type of martial arts? Do you um, do?
1: it started out with karate and I've done many different martial arts, Muay Thai, Wushu, Kung Fu, boxing, Taekwondo. I have a third degree black belt in Taekwondo. So that's what I, I spent many years teaching, competing. I was actually Olympic hopeful in my early twenties for Taekwondo. And, um, Bruce Lee kind of set the stage for my consciousness. That's a pretty good model. It, yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: The interesting thing, this might sound weird, but I noticed when we were on your podcast how strong your hands look. And I was like, I work out every day. And I play sports and my hands don't look like, your hands look like rocks. And I Mm -hmm. didn't know that about you doing all the martial arts. And it's like, it's it's interesting how, like, I really want my children to do like gymnastics Mm -hmm. and some type of martial arts where like all of these sports are like hyper specific movement Mm -hmm, patterns mm -hmm. that I think don't fully flesh out the organism. Yeah. As like a child, but there's something about gymnastics Mm -hmm. and martial arts that like really like all the things are being like moved apart and like growing and like blood flow
1: is getting there. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Spot on. Yeah. So anyways, go on. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's, that's kind of… Was it a
0: specific scene in the movie?
1: Um, it's it's almost like… I mean, I, I remember the entire movie, like, clearly, because I've seen it a hundred times. But it's almost like it's just the iconography of Bruce Lee, like the archetype of Bruce Lee. Um, I never had a father growing up. And so, I interpreted it as, like, that was part of my life design. Like, that model was kind of just inserted in that moment to give me this real life iconography of a flesh and blood superhero within the context of a martial artist, which clearly informed my path because I had a natural inclination towards martial arts out the get-go.
0: It was interesting as you're answering a lot of the following questions that I normally ask because the next question I was going to ask is, uh, what was your favorite story mm-hmm. as a child? Mm-hmm. Um, cause uh, I find that children will find a story yeah early that they demand either be replayed or reread or retold. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like yours was enter the dragon. Was it not the else?
1: story of enter the dragon? The actual story there. There's a lot of stories. The one that came up for me was actually of Batman.
0: Mm. If you were to tell the story of Batman Mm -hmm. um, to us, how would you tell it? Because there's a lot Mm -hmm. of different Mm -hmm. versions of that story.
1: Yeah. So, all right, I'll give it my best shot here. Once upon a time, there was a mythical city called Gotham. And within this dystopian environment, there was a boy named Bruce Wayne. And Bruce Wayne was the prodigal child of the most influential man, his father, in the city of Gotham. And by all accounts, it would seem that this boy was going to grow up to be the prince of Gotham and had everything handed to him. But at the young age of five or so, he was dealt the greatest tragedy by witnessing his mother and father murdered in cold blood. And this became the defining moment of his life. And throughout his life, he alchemized that pain and loss and turned it into his pursuit by embracing his deepest fear, which was that of a bat. And the bat was a symbol of a creature that lurks in the dark. And by embracing that and integrating that, he used that fear as a way to mold himself through discipline and focus to become the greatest superhero of all time, a man of flesh and blood who became a superhero through his discipline in his pursuit of justice to make sure that nobody else suffered the loss that he did. And that is the beginning and end. That was pretty fucking good. Um, okay, <laughs>
0: A couple of things that come to mind that I think are interesting about that myth is one um it seems to be that a lot of the myths that were alive in American culture in the last like fifty to sixty years involved the father dying mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I think that that is likely a reflection of what the state of fatherhood was in the u s mm-hmm. um Compared to what the psyche yearns for. And I think, like, the myth that I resonated with the most when I was a kid was the Lion King, and that, mm-hmm. too, yeah, has me the too. father who yeah. dies. And um, my father was physically present uh, but until I was 10. Then my parents got divorced, and then he moved out. But he was never emotionally present. Mm-hmm. Like, it really did not feel like I had, you know, the... Uh, like archetypical father that a boy yearns for, you know, on a psychic level. Mm -hmm. The other really interesting thing is uh, in a lot of cultural traditions, there's this mythological motif and there's different versions of it and there's different words for it. But one of the ones I resonate with is uh, your animal familiar. And your animal familiar is a spirit of a specific animal that will actually terrorize you until you're able to master it. And then it becomes your energetic Mm -hmm. ally. Mm -hmm. And that this is, there are different type of shamanic traditions that um, go much deeper into this, but that the idea is from a Jungian lens, which is ones that you and I are both familiar with. It's like, there's a specific archetypical energy that is in your shadow that is trying to make contact with you and it will make contact with you through your imagination or your dreams as an animal. And that if you can learn to face it, it actually becomes a part of your Mm -hmm. like energetic toolkit. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was a wolf when I was young. Um, it's, it's really interesting to like think back, but like, whenever I'd be in a car, this was for like five years, I would always imagine this big white wolf just like running like 80 miles. And I mean, we weren't going 80, but like 60 miles an hour along the side of the car. And often when I slept at night, I would imagine that wolf kind of just like out in the darkness, just, you know, chilling, just kind of like at the perimeter of my awareness where beyond it was just complete darkness. And it was just there. And, uh, (laughs) <laughs> those cliche 90 collages of like uh-huh. wolves howling on like a t-shirt i had yeah. those shirts yeah. and i had those pictures on my wall um and now as a th- now as a 31 year old man my intellect feels like a wolf mm-hmm. like when i read mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i and i like hunt for either quotes or studies or ideas it feels like i'm a wolf hunting and that it's one of my greatest gifts. Mm-hmm. And so it's cool that that was integrated into the Batman story. Uh, are there specific animal familiars that mm. you resonate with? And if so, what would you say is the like most?
1: Potent? Yeah. And that's, that's really great. Now immediately I was thinking of the story of Mowgli from the jungle book. Mm. That's another amazing one too, just to put that out there. Um, Yes. Uh, the jaguar, the panther, like not e- either or, but just that that energy, that archetype for me feels very central to like my operating system as a martial artist, as an athlete, like how I how I operate in the world, just within my world and my work, my daily walk, like even like the comment you made about my hands and how my body is, like how I move my body feels very like jaguar pantherish, and even my mind like this like it's like I can get into these like very deeply focused laser focused states but there's also like an agility to it too it's mm. not rigid there's I, I I've prided like throughout uh, out all my training like footwork and coordination and and uh, adaptability was really huge for me so it's interesting that I've never really thought of it From you know from you asking the question, but yeah, I think the panther panther jaguar tiger kind of energy that I resonate with.
0: That makes sense. So to go back to your childhood, um, this movie Mm -hmm. and then the archetype of Bruce Lee, um, how did that influence what your early life looked like?
1: Like what Mm -hmm. was
0: your early life
1: like? Yeah. So I grew up in a household that was functionally dysfunctional. Um, I didn't have my father around, so I didn't actually have a conscious reference point for the father archetype. Um, there were different men that kind of came in and out, but they they were what we would call maybe beta males or uh, or just men that like they were good intention, but they weren't like real strong, solid male role models. So I never really like Had much interest in them. They didn't really have a lot to to give me. They were just kind of men that came in and out of my life. And I feel like for me, I I really was learning to be a man and growing up mostly of my own volition. Um, I had a lot of independence only because my mom wasn't there very much. She wasn't a bad mom by any means, but she also wasn't the archetypal loving nurturing mom that the little boy needed. So there is so, you know, there was a lot of stuff I've had to work out, um, mother wounds and stuff since. But I I really was learning and developing so much just through pure life experience. And then martial arts came in as the structure that I needed. And I think with yeah. Bruce Lee, which was just what was interesting and why I gravitated towards like mythology and different um movies, characters, and movies, and getting into anime and and all these different cartoons and comics, there was some kind of like quintessential signature that my consciousness locked onto as replacements that felt more real and resonant with me than anything in my physical environment yeah i
0: I can feel and I resonate with that where my dad wasn't a disruptive enough force to create any type of, like, fuck the archetype of dad type thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And he also wasn't present enough to create a specific model that I had to match. And so I felt free as, like, a young boy to, like, start to, like, Frankenstein together Mm -hmm, or like mm -hmm. Voltron together. The ideal man that I didn't even understand that I was trying to put together. And like I drew from like King Arthur. Mm -hmm. I drew from Odin was one that I really resonated with. Hercules Um,
1: was a big one at some point.
0: Yeah. I didn't. I loved the movie Hercules, but I didn't resonate with his character and I'm not sure why. And I could probably go. I could probably psychoanalyze. I think I got into now. like the
1: Kevin Sorbo, like Hercules TV oh, show. Yeah, I didn't watch
0: that much. Um, what were some of my other ones? Uh, Did you ever watch Highlander? That was another one. The I, character I vaguely Duncan MacLeod. knew of it. Okay. Um, my dad actually really liked Highlander. And I think it came on at the point in the day where I only saw the ending. And like for those like TV shows, the ending, it's the same ending uh-huh. to every episode uh-huh. and it's so yeah, like yeah, yeah. he finally won and yeah, he got yeah, to yeah, absorb yeah. more power and i think because i didn't see any of the struggle it never mm-hmm. really caught me um but houdini mm. and edgar allan poe mm. actually that makes sense called to me when i was young <laughs> that makes complete sense i have this memory of for a project in fucking 5th grade i got like a six by six slab of white paper. And I drew a huge raven um, with the moon behind it. And like, I memorized the raven, the poem by Edgar Allan Poe for our this big class project. I don't know how my mom let me do this. I don't know if I told her, but I brought a grim reaper robe Halloween (laughs) outfit (laughs) to class. And it was like 2 p.m. on a Friday and I turned off all the lights. I didn't think this through because with the lights off, you couldn't see the drawing I had spent like 20 hours on because the amount of markers I had to use to fill in. Mm -hmm. But I turned off the lights. I hung the photo behind me and in my grim reaper outfit, (laughs) I recited the Raven poem. Uh, I've never told that story. So, you know, that is what it is.
1: Just just adding one more thing on there. What that made me think about is the movie The Crow. Yeah. And that character that Brandon Lee played in his last movie, mm. that character has always stuck with me too. I, I think I've always had a penchant for these like anti-hero heroes and like this like integration of like tragedy into this like character that uses the darkness And embodies it and redirects it back onto the quote-unquote villains. Yeah. So
0: you've mentioned martial arts. I find that for most people who find a way in life where they end up being on a podcast, like where they get like enough success, like Mm -hmm. they find Mm -hmm. some groove. I find that most of them had some skill or Mm -hmm. domain Mm -hmm. that they tasted when they were young. Yeah that they had a knack for, and then they fed it yeah. and they fed it. And like, for me, the moment I started playing basketball and I started to feel like my skills improve that became like the core spine that helped me endure everything that happened to me as a teenager. 100%. Um, and it was also a place where I got to practice discipline and mastery. Like, the thing about a competitive sport that it's hard to get almost anywhere else unless you're constantly in wild nature mm-hmm. is there's this element of like you can't cheat it that's right you 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 can't shortcut you can't like whine it to conform to what you'd like it to be you either like lose or like you mm-hmm, know mm-hmm, get punched mm-hmm. in the face or mm-hmm. just get embarrassed yep. or you practice and get better yeah. and it doesn't care. It's pure. Right. Mhm. So, um, what was that moment where you first tasted that with martial arts? How old were you and just can you kind of tell us that story?
1: Yeah, and by the way, this tattoo here. Basketball was my other. So, martial arts and basketball were my two sports growing up.
0: Cool.
1: Yeah. We should hoop. Definitely. Yeah. Um, well, let me Okay, so there's so many stories coming up, so when I was growing up with martial arts um it was something that I I did a lot in private because I think I I didn't I didn't have like the the parental encouragement I wasn't discouraged but like to go compete and really test my skills that didn't come until I was in my my mid teens mm. and the way the story goes is that I was I was this had been a long held dream that I had but you know I I got off the path and Got in a lot of trouble, um, started experimenting with like marijuana and alcohol and girls. and. What age? um, I'd say like that started maybe between 13 and 15, like really just in that social world of just growing up junior high, high school. Yeah, just a real quick side note. I read books a lot when I was young
0: and the moment puberty started, I didn't read a book again until I tore my rotator cuff and could not play basketball and had to have like, for like seven years, it was just testosterone. It was just basketball Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and girls. Yeah, I didn't read a single fucking book for like seven years.
1: Yeah, that was very similar, yeah. And so I I had this dream of competing, but for whatever reason, I wasn't acting on it. I wasn't doing it. And then I remember I would skip classes or on recess, I would go train. And as if I was preparing for something. And one day I was running on the track and field and I got stopped. Like, like something stopped me and it was like a lightning bolt came through and this voice came through my consciousness and said, do you think you're going to live forever? And it was just like, and I just got the whole vision. What age? 15 or 16, I think. And the next day I went right back into the dojo Told the master, like, I want to sign up. I want to commit fully. I want to compete. I want to go to the Olympics. Like, this is, just, I just laid it out. And then from that day on, I was patterning my life as a professional athlete. I was studying, studying other Olympic athletes and then starting to model their, their schedule. And it just all clicked in. And um, that, that was, like, the first, like, real defining turning point.
0: What was the first moment that you got to compete? Mm-hmm. So at 16, you have that like wake up moment. Yeah. You commit. Then how long until you get that first? Yeah, it, it was
1: pretty quick because it, because I had been training this whole time, but I had never really refined it and competed with it. So it, it actually turned on really quick. I very quickly became like the best martial artists in my school. It was like I was a black belt without a black belt. And so now I just had more structure and guidance. And I I, I started to excel very quickly. And then once I started competing and starting getting comfortable with it, I remember there was one tournament where there was like three matches and you have like two rounds of three minutes each. And it's like very like high paced. It's basically boxing, but with feet. And, um, the first match is like a blur. I just know that I won the second match I go in and that one was a little more difficult. I had to fight my way through that. And then there was the final. So I made it to the final round. And that I remember, like, that was like a struggle. Like after the first round with that person, that, that competitor, I'm sitting on the chair and I'm just gassed. Right. I'm just like, oh, my leg feels swollen. And I'm just telling my coach, like, I can't do it. He looks me in my eyes. Like, you're going to get back out there and you're going to win this thing go out there and i'm like okay and it was just like a force of will i just went unconscious and just won that fight and there's a picture of me standing on the podium and there's like the bronze silver gold medal i'm at top with the gold medal i'm i'm limping on one foot but i have the biggest cheesy smile on my face like i just did mdma or something i'm just like ah and that like that, was like a major turning point, like to go through that ordeal and to succeed and overcome and to win, that's when I was like, okay.
0: Yeah, an interesting thing that I can feel into is that competitive sports for people who are both lucky enough and dedicated enough to be good enough at it, there's the opportunity to actually touch an altered state of consciousness mm-hmm. that... For most people in our culture, when you are 16, unless you've had some incredibly dangerous life experiences or you're incredibly lucky, you haven't tasted a mystical experience yet. Right. And there's this flow state that can happen in competition, where if you taste mm-hmm. it, especially as a teenager, mm-hmm. where there, where you don't know any other way to possibly taste that feeling, that it like, the whole world is now pointed at. Totally. I want to touch that feeling again, and I can remember, like, I had a game where I was a sophomore, and um, I went like nine for nine. I made every shot that I took, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I remember how it felt afterwards. And I was just like, you know, I didn't have the word like the words for it then, but nothing in my life yeah. tasted as good. As not even the outcome, Mm -hmm. but that moment of like, I'm not even here, but my body is dancing in a way where no one else can stop me Mm -hmm, from doing mm -hmm. what my body wants to do. Yeah. And it's um, I chase that feeling. That's my favorite. That's my
1: totally. That is my favorite feeling ever, just that peak state of hyper-synchronized flow. And it's like you train yourself enough to meet that moment. And when you meet that moment and it, it like captures you and you're in a flow and you realize that like, oh, I'm, I'm pretty much like can do whatever I want. And, and I also know that it's like, it's not guaranteed. It's just this exact moment right now that I either have the ball or I'm like, I'm, I'm shadow boxing with this individual. And I'm just aware that like, it's like time slows down. And I can do anything I want in this moment. And then it's learning how to extend that, how to stay on that, Mm -hmm. that like surfboard long enough to, you know, just keep that thing going.
0: Yeah, it's one of the best.
1: (laughs) Um, so you touched that moment. You were 16 still? Um, no, this is like a number of years. I think like I think so that tournament, I think, was like 17.
0: Cool. Yeah. So, um,
1: you graduate high school. Mm -hmm. What's the path forward from there? Um, so when I, when I finally graduated high school, I was trying to figure out, do I play basketball, go to college, um, at the, it was just like a community college, um, and do I play basketball? Do I do full-time Taekwondo? I was also toying with the idea of going into professional kickboxing. So I hadn't fully determined like exactly which direction. And um, and then basically like a year in, I'm, I'm in English class and it just dawns on me. I just realized like I'm going to go full on, full into Taekwondo. So the next day I dropped out. This is, this is a lot of like how my life has played out, dropped out of college, dropped out of college. I was like, okay, this isn't relevant whatsoever. I'm just here because my mom just like, give it a shot. I'm just here. So I don't get fined. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But finally, once I decided what I was going to do with my life next day, dropped out went full into Taekwondo, I started becoming an instructor. And so I was starting to teach full time while also competing full time. And that's when I was clear that, no, I want to go to the Olympics. I want to do this for real and uh, then just pivoted right into it. The joke
0: I wanted to make, but I don't know if it's appropriate, but I feel like because it's true, it's like, all right, so what was the
1: injury that happened that killed that dream? That's great. So when I was 18, I had my first knee injury. It was just from overtraining. And I tore a piece of my MCL on my right knee And I just kept training through it. And then eventually it became too much. I went and got the scans and the doctor was like, yeah, like, you know, you, he actually told me you might want to think about a different career. And I cussed him out of the room. My mom was right there. I literally cussed him out of the room. It felt like for the first time someone was trying to take my dream away. Yeah. And so I went through a bunch of stuff. Finally. Got the right doctor. I got the surgery, and then I spent the next year and a half going through a deep rehab process. And my my taekwondo master, he wouldn't let me train, and so the and also this was like my coping mechanism as well. Like I had yep. nothing else to rely on, yep. and so all that like existential pressure and tension and everything inside of me, I needed to learn how to refocus it. And so this is what got me into. Um, going back to reading and I, and I really just was reading like biographies on, on people like Lance Armstrong and Michael Jordan and different, you know, different people I'm, I'm trying to, I'm like really searching right now. I'm like, really, I'm really going deep to keep this dream alive. Cause this is like, I'm, it was very real for me that I don't know what else to do. This is the first time I've encountered this. And, um, the blessing in that too, was, my master just was like, look, just start teaching. So then I, I I did my rehabbing. I was doing my rehab, but then I would spend all my time um, teaching. I started with the little children. We call it the little dragons. It was a three and five year olds. And then through developing this skill set as an instructor, I started getting really deep into teaching. And then over the course of a couple of years, I became the head instructor of the school, 500 students of all ages. And then over that year and a half, something just kind of clicked on with me. I I basically accepted it. I was like, okay, well, this is, I didn't give up, but I was just like, okay, well, like this is, this is what I'm doing now. And then something clicked at a tournament. And then I, I just was like, I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready to go back in. It was kind of like, like letting something die Mm. and then letting it kind of be reborn And then, um, I had mostly healed that and then got back into training. And, um, and then I got really, then that's when things started to take off. Like, um, I started competing at like the U S open and different, different national, um, competitions. And I had my breakout year in 2007 where it was really like, it was like known, like I, I had arrived like now, now we're really getting to that place where it's getting real. I actually had an offer to go to Colorado to train at the um, Olympic Training Center. Um, I had a lot of different opportunities to, to go to the next level. Um, and I'll make a longer short story very short. Um, it wasn't actually an injury that took me out of that path. It was falling in love with a woman that was the mother of two of my students and one of my students brandon who i taught from the age of 4 till 7 he was my absolute best student and me and this woman we 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 fell in love it was very just kind of by surprise and that was a taboo thing like just the code of ethics and conflict of yeah. interest and so we had a relationship in private for about 4 months and it got out and and you know we we fell in love we wanted to be together we tried to make it work long story short there was an ultimatum moment where I'm brought into the office with my master and he's like, you know, we we need to protect the interests of the school and you got to make a choice. And I'm already so deep in it with her at this point where I was like, well, this now means more to me. If I have to choose, I'm going, I'm not, I'm going with this. And I remember I, I was, Tears are coming down my eyes. I took off my black belt and I put it on the table. And that was like a real, that was another defining moment of destiny where like I literally handed over my dream and chose this path, this relationship and shifted out of that. And what ended up happening after that is really interesting. So I go into this relationship, but that part of me is kind of like, you know, what do I do now? And I remember my other childhood dream was playing basketball. And so I remember going to a park that I, I used to shoot hoops up, hoops at growing up. And so I held the basketball and I dribble it once, twice, thrice. It lands in my hand. And all of a sudden I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. So I, it just came through. And then the next day I transferred all that energy over into basketball. I hired a skills trainer, weight trainer, and then just started adapting my whole like routine into becoming a professional basketball player. I spent the next three years doing that and pursuing um, a professional career. And that's a whole other story. I had another knee injury um, on my left knee, tore my ACL and piece of my my, uh, cartilage got the surgery healed from that very quickly. Cause by this time I, I really became a professional athlete and um, yeah. And then, and then a week before I had um, I had a tryout at the golden state warriors gym, not for the team, obviously, but for the D league. And my coach had been preparing me for, we've been working super hard and I was ready. Like I really felt like I was ready. Um, but I had a spiritual awakening slash crisis which was a byproduct of getting into a raw food diet for a year and going through all this cleansing and detoxing I just had like a deep like um, interpersonal cleansing going on and so a week before I go into the tryouts something had shifted inside of me like the fire kind of just like dwindled and I I just told my coach like I don't know what's going on but I don't want to do this anymore it's very Wow, very weird and confusing, but I went with it and then and then that that took me towards the path that I've been on the last twelve years now.
0: There are so many incredible <laughs> things. Wow, you've done some dope shit. That's pretty cool. Um, <clears throat> which slide do I want to speak on before we continue on? Um, one of the really interesting things that I find, at least with my peer group, of people that i have like an instant resonance with is that they've when they were younger they developed mastery at Mm -hmm. something Mm -hmm. and then the developed mastery at that skill created a specific dream Mm -hmm. that they like believed in and that like oriented their life and then a life circumstance Mm -hmm. often an injury uh change their body in such a way where the dream has to die and then they have to go through that process. And, um, what I found is the first time I got addicted to something Mm -hmm. was after I tore my rotator cuff, I was given like a six month prescription without any follow-up doctor visit of hydro coating. And I took it every day. And, uh, four reasons that are kind of long to get into as a senior in high school that's when i got the surgery i lived alone like i had my own home it was my mom's home but she lived in a different state uh so i had no parents around me Mm. and i didn't even realize it but i was depressed and i got addicted to painkillers and i started to skip breakfast so that it would hit harder I would go to school in my sling and all the teachers knew me because I was so vocal in Mm -hmm. class. Mm -hmm. And most of them, the ones who weren't good teachers were just happy that I was quiet. But the really good (laughs) teachers were like, Eric, like what the fuck's going on? And I couldn't, I was just like, you know, painkillers and they didn't really go further than that. And when I ran out of painkillers, um, I didn't even realize it, but I started eating mm-hmm. in a way to try to get that same like opiate yeah. feeling, yeah, and my like healthy weight back then was like one eighty probably um I got up to like two twenty five all fat mm. and it wasn't until I remember the day I looked at myself in the mirror and i like i like had tits and like I was in such, you know, like we were talking about it, I think maybe on your podcast about how we can lie to ourselves yeah. if we don't track ourselves. Yeah. I was never looking at myself in the mirror. I I, I was wearing two shirts. I don't know if you knew people who mm-hmm. did that in high mm-hmm. school, but like mm-hmm. where you would wear the two shirts to like hide. Yeah. And uh, I just had this like awakening moment. And then… um it was after that that I started to read philosophy. I, mm-hmm. My new goal went from basketball to to philosophy, uh-huh. and I went super deep into that for a while. And then after three years of trying to do that professionally in the way that I was trying to do it, uh, I read Gödel, Escher, Bach. I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with that book, but it introduces a mathematician who wrote a very small book called Gödel's Theorem. That long story short. It basically logically proves that any logical system, in order to justify that it's logical, must reference its fundamental axioms and that, therefore, it can't be logical. And this might sound like it doesn't mean anything to most people, but to the thing that I was trying to do that I thought would save my life, it killed it. Mm. And I realized it on five grams of mushrooms. And I had one of the hardest experiences of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, So the core of it is I find that the people that I resonate with are people who, when they were younger, got so all in Mm. into the game of life Mm -hmm. and then had the thing that helped them be all in die. And then they had to go through like a death rebirth before... You know, it was cool to have a death-rebirth experience. And I find that it does something specifically. Like, there's a type of person who has the ability to be an animal
1: Mm.
0: and to, like, dominate. Mm -hmm. And then has had that power taken from them. Totally. Yeah. But so, if they need to, they can be. Mm -hmm. But then they've cultivated a whole new part that's, like, kind, caring trying to help people. And I find that um, it's a very interesting pattern that mm-hmm. most of the people mm-hmm. that I'm close to have some version of that yeah. story arc.
1: Yeah, that's a great observation. And I I think the, the blessing of martial arts, that being the physical um, athletic kind of medium that I grew up with, the thing that's different about traditional martial arts, not this like MMA stuff, like I'm very turned off by all that. That's to me is not really martial arts. It's just combative sporting. The thing about traditional martial arts is that there's a there's a moral and ethical framework that's built into it. Mm. And um, especially like I, I was really in the Eastern culture, like the Japanese, Korean culture um, and surrounded by... by people from that culture. And so, and I always, I felt like probably from a past life, I've probably been a samurai multiple times. Like I resonate so deeply with the Bushido tenets, and, and I can actually feel and taste and touch that part of me. Um, And so in Bruce Lee too, like that, that archetype of, of a being of a man that could disarm and and immobilize and and kill anyone in front of him. Yet he was so philosophically sound and so wise and so kind and and caring. And that combination um, was something I always resonated with. Like every, like I, I got so deep into like Hong Kong cinema and all these niche martial arts movies. I've seen every Jet Li movie before he came to America. And there's always these interesting characters These like martial arts characters that embody this like gentle kindness um, and like this nobility. um, But also when pushed and shoved, turn on this like fierce warrior mode. And something about that always just felt so true to me.
0: Yeah, same.
1: What was the next
0: stage that kind of brought you to the point where you then later became an expert on addiction?
1: Yeah, well, the addiction thing really really came more in the last like 2 years. Um what ended up happening in that that timeline shift, um I so I got into the raw food diet because I I was working in a hospital to supplement my basketball career and and this is just so interesting how God is just placed me at all these different places and placed different things in my life. And I can see in retrospect, the movie reel perfectly lining up. And so I was working in a hospital as an HIV tester, and I did this for about three years. So I'm, I'm literally put in the, the, the environment so I know exactly what's going on in the ER room. I know what the doctors are doing. I know what they're eating. I know what the nurses are doing. I, I see what's going on with the patients and everything. And two years into it, I got on YouTube University and stumbled upon a guy named David Wolf, who became my mentor and is a good friend of mine now. He, he basically became the biggest spokesperson for the raw food diet. And um, I, just, I just saw this, this guy in a poncho giving this electric lecture on like grounding and vegetables and juicing and healing. And I was like, Whoa, okay. I'd never seen this before. And it, how long
0: ago was this? This was
1: 2009. Yeah. And, um, and then like I Paul check and different, like these different people on YouTube were popping up and it clicked something in for me. And I was like, Oh, okay, that's the missing piece right there. I didn't know anything about this. I didn't even know a vegetarian was actually a real thing. Like I thought it was like a myth or something, you know? Um, And so I just got really fascinated with like the healing arts and diet and nutrition. And so I got really deep into the raw food thing and was like at the grocery store twice a day. Like in and just like loading up on vegetables and and, and fruits and 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 superfoods and all these amazing things that I'm learning. And so I would I would be doing my HIV testing. And then in the back of my office, I had a little, little smoothie maker, a little bullet thing. And I'm making up spirulina smoothies and cacao smoothies. And I'm secretly on the computer studying about the pharmaceutical industry and the medical industry and all the the, you know, all the, the really the deception, the reality of it. And so I became kind of like this secret agent going in there. And so I'm having like a consciousness awakening at the same time. And I'm starting to see everything from a very different lens. And so I I ended up transitioning out of that job when I decided like, again, how am I going to redirect all this energy? And I, I saw David Wolf and other people. I was like, I can do that. I always wanted to be a speaker. I was a speaker as a teacher. I was speaking and, mm. but you know, in a different kind of sense, I studied Tony Robbins growing up in these personal development teachers. And I was like, Oh, I'm going to do that. And so again, I just started redirecting all that energy. And I decided, I was like, okay, well I want to, I want to write a book. I was like, okay, I'm going to become a nutritionist. I'm going to, at the time I was a huge advocate for like the raw food and superfood lifestyle. And, um, and then I just started like giving talks at like potlucks and stuff in the Bay area and, and just kind of doing the thing. <clears throat> and then it just started to take a life, a life of its own. And I started meeting other people that were doing this, like c- people coming out of the woodwork, yeah. people that were like harvesting their own spring water. And I'm learning about this and, and this whole community started to form. And so long story short, over the last decade, I started out as a nutritionist and, and holistic health practitioner and studying all kinds of um, disease reversal and um, physical optimization and healing that naturally led me into psychological development. And then this awareness between the mind and the body as a central unit, what's going on in the mind is going on in the body, vice versa, and how to heal the body through the mind and heal the, the mind through the body. Um do you know the bass actor's song? The body heals
0: the mind, heals the body. Or the body heals the mind, heals the mind, heals the body. And it's just,
1: I, I, it sounds familiar. It's pretty good. Sorry. Yeah. It, just it was an that. amazing chorus. I don't know if that was helpful. Yeah. I mean, I just started going down all these, these rabbit holes and they just started all integrating under the common theme of healing and, and personal transformation. And so, so I became a speaker and author, wrote many books and and um, developed my career and, but there's always like this reinvention theme going on in my life. Like I can't get stuck in any one thing too long. Like I'll get in there, I'll absorb everything and then I'll, I'll integrate it and include it and keep moving through it. And the addiction thing really came up in 2020. I had been studying addiction on and off. Cause you come across this thing. You, you learn about trauma and it's, it's relative, but I started to come up against my own addictions because of the pressure of 2020, particularly Mm -hmm. through the pandemic. And I'd always been kind of conspiratorially minded. And part of my side hobby for about 10 years was like studying like ET and ufology and, and Egyptology and all these like niche paranormal metaphysical things. And I had gone into like government corruption and stuff. Like I was aware of it, but like when 2020 came, it was put in my face. I think it was put in all of our face and it really rocked me. And so I started going really deep down that rabbit hole. And the reason I bring that up is because the pressure of that started to unearth tension and stress and trauma within me. And I think that was just a just an individual expression of what was going on in the collective and i started to develop like um you know really strong attachments to coffee and caffeine and tobacco um different i was doing a lot of like mdma journeys at different times um you know pornography on and off for years like all these things started to become really big hindrances in my process and i knew it and I had to figure out how to solve that riddle. Because it got so so problematic in my personal life because my personal life was not in integrity with my professional life and it got to a point where I actually was not able to show up on social media or or for clients or for things because there was just too much chaos going on in my my personal life. And so I had to figure out how to solve that problem and it really came from me being super honest that I'm I'm struggling with addiction, and so I started studying addiction, studying dopamine, and all these different things, and trauma, as a way to work therapy, therap- therapy therapizing, doing therapy on myself, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but also learning it as a way to teach it. One hundred percent. And then the book, the book just kind of came through like some of these things do. I was just driving. It just dropped in my mind It just 30 second download. It all came through. And then within eight months, I completed the book. I don't even actually know how I did. It wasn't it was just I just poured into it. And um, that's kind of how that's how the whole addiction topic came through.
0: So what is your lens and perspective on addiction? Like, how would you set the table for people?
1: To understand addiction? Yeah. I like what Gabor Mate says, which is addiction is not your problem. Addiction is attempt to solve the problem. So for me, these things weren't the problem and I knew it. Um, But it was my coping mechanism for the underlining stress and the anxiety, the I came to find out in an ayahuasca ceremony, I came to realize that I actually had like subclinical form of depression going on that I just, you know, I learned to manage through my life through all these different endeavors. And um and so, you know, addiction itself to me, it, it's multi-tiered. We we have to we have to separate the mechanism from the human being. Right, you have the human being themselves, and then you have the mechanisms of action that we use as coping mechanisms, stress management devices, um, and we develop these neuroassociative patterns to these things, these external, these external inputs that create a cognitive, neurochemical stimuli in the dopamine system that the brain. The brain is tracking as a form of stress relief or pressure relief. And then it develops this signal that like, okay, this this thing out here, this nicotine, this caffeine, this pornography, this social media, this person, this um, the alcohol, the cannabis, whatever it may be, this is the way that I relieve this pain or inflammation, prescription medications, whatever you want to pick. Um, and then it becomes built into our our um, our neuroadaptation device, and that, that's just like one like that's just like a quick like you know l- little riff on it. Um, I would I would say for people though to understand addiction, it's like un- understanding the Buddhist wheel of samsara from a spiritual perspective, because all addiction really at the, at the core of it is a spiritual issue. Once you start working through the layers. And to me, I look at it like, and I wrote, I wrote this in the book towards the end, there's a whole chapter on um, karma and dharma. And we were talking a lot about dharma. And to me, when I look at karma, karma to me is not like the effect of something that you did, like, like you throw something out there and then it comes like a boomerang. To me, that's just cause and effect. To me, karma is actually the cycle of addiction that you're on. It, it is your fate. It's like your character becomes your fate. So the more you practice and do something, engage with it, that actually is the wheel of karma or the wheel of samsara, which is the wheel of suffering. That The karma is the thing that I'm actually living out. And the dharma is me getting off the wheel of, of suffering and getting into my authentic nature. And so like... The the addicted self is the inauthentic self, right? That's my karma that I'm actually participating in, and the Dharma is my authentic self, the Logos manifested in my physical uh, pattern in my life. Um, yeah,
0: what does it feel like for you to be in your authentic self as opposed to the self that mm-hmm. chooses? The Mm -hmm. caffeine and the tobacco and the porn.
1: It feels like my fully optimized self. It feels very grounded, centered, um, clear. Like it feels like a state of peace, but not a state of passivity. Mm. It's hyper-attuned and hyper-aware, but not in a state of hyper-stimulated. It's like... I'm just centered and grounded and I'm able to move from one moment to another in a continuous flow. It's like a flow state. Mm. Um, I don't need anything outside of myself and yet I can utilize something exogenous to me by choice. Um, But there's no grasping. There's no hungry ghost that I'm trying to fill. What is one of the first
0: like markers that you experience that let you know that you're falling out of the resonance with the authentic self and Mm. you're starting to come into the Mm. quote-unquote addicted self like what are some of your
1: like signals in Mm -hmm, your life mm -hmm. to let you know such a good question Mm. one of them that's coming to me is when i start to get into not that I get into deep thought, because there's a difference between thinking and 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 just the kind of chaotic default. Frenet, yeah, where, yeah, yeah. Like actually engaged in a in a thought process, um, versus like anxious thoughts or erratic thoughts or fear generating thoughts. It's, it's and it can be very subtle, and that's what I'm tracking right now. It's almost like when I'm, it's like that flow state that we're talking about. Like when I'm in the flow, I'm just clear and I'm present and I'm available, but it's when it starts to dip over into this frenetic energy and I start to feel like tension or chaos in my system. Mm. And there's usually like a a grasping. It's like when the nervous system starts to go into a little bit of a disarray and um, I feel unorganized. Mm. That's when I, that's when it starts to tip over and, it, and it's very subtle. It doesn't, it's not always, it doesn't always manifest itself. Obviously that way. Um, I'll say it this way for me, when I am not following my, my authentic pattern. And for me, the authentic pattern usually has a certain structure to it. It's not necessarily based on what I'm doing, but there are certain like,
0: characteristics.
1: Yeah. There's a certain, there's a certain like energy and there's a certain structure that I know is necessary in my life. And so to the degree that I'm actually doing those things, lets me know who I'm being, because if I'm not doing those things and I'm, 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 yeah, I'm just ducking out of, of doing the things that I know that I, that, that version of me enjoys doing and is also the right thing for me to do then I know that I'm slipping into an unconscious pattern.
0: I know for me that uh, one of the sneakiest addictions that's able to masquerade as my authentic self Mm. is my workaholism, Mm -hmm. quote
1: unquote. Mm -hmm.
0: And that might not be a fair word because it might be like uh, painting it with a black and white brush, but... I can feel that um, my natural tendency Mm -hmm. is to be disciplined now Mm -hmm. after all the work that I've done. Right. And it's like Mm -hmm. my natural tendency is it's like, I'm going to sit down and do the one thing that fills me up. And that I can feel that... um, After I've given myself completely Mm. to that Mm. thing for like three or four hours, I then have 10 hours of like a day where I have things that if I didn't do those things, it would feel like I'm not taking care of my home.
1: Yeah.
0: But my life would be easier if I didn't do four hours and I did two hours. Or maybe if I just skipped it every once in a while and just had full days of like Mm. to take care of the meat suit Mm -hmm. of the day type stuff. And that, um, so I guess what I'm asking is, do you find that quote unquote workaholism Mm -hmm. or the Mm -hmm. addiction to feeling clear or to feeling organized? And I don't even know if that's a fair way to say it. Yeah. Um, Because just again, before, our hearts are very wise and we will fall in love with people that have Mm -hmm. the just right medicine for us. Oh yeah. And like the gift that my partner gives is it's like, no, there's always some other option, you know, like, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and it's just a truth of life that my disciplined laser wolf part is actually blind to. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And that there's this interesting tension through who I have fallen in love with, where it's like, There's a whole spectrum of life where I've discovered my authentic being in the chaos, in the unorganized, undisciplined, deep waters of what some of these experiences Mm -hmm. can be. Mm -hmm. And it brings forth new aspects of my authentic self, almost Mm -hmm. like a flower that Mm -hmm. has new shoots Mm -hmm. coming out Mm -hmm. of it that I wouldn't have discovered if I had just stayed on that path of mm-hmm. mastery. And so I'm curious what comes up for you as you kind of hear me work mm-hmm. through that.
1: Yeah. I, I feel like there's like an implicate perfection to the design <clears throat> of my life, but I only know that looking backwards, like moving forward. It's, it's been very challenging and it's, it's required a lot of, a lot of both discipline and reining it in and also letting loose and creating freedom and space. And I'm in a space now in my life where I need, I need both of those polarities dancing together. And it's almost like I'm learning how to follow it and create enough structure and organization. So there's, there's a container, but also needing needing pillars. I need, I need enough of my time designated to specific things to keep my energy ordered. But I also know that I, I I can't really, I can't schedule out too many things. Otherwise I'm, I'm going to feel like claustrophobic right. and tight. I'm going to end up rearranging things.
0: What are your current pillars in your life right now?
1: Um, working out is key. I, I know that if I go lo- too long without lifting weights or running or training, um, that, that angst comes in. I get, I get really squirrely sometimes.
0: How long is too long? Cause it, it gets weird for me if
1: yeah. a day goes by. Yeah. Um, I'm not. Yeah. It's, huh. I guess maybe three to four days max. Um, And I'll go in cycles, but like, that's one thing I know for me that I, I have to have in and even just like going into my gym for like 20, 30 minutes. Right. Like is, is, A a little bit like I can get a lot done in a little bit of time that that sometimes is the, the magic. Sometimes it's a couple hours if I'm really like, I really like in that space and I'm going too much of an edible and then you end up working out for
0: three hours or is that just me and Graham? No,
1: that, no, that definitely I've, I've done like MDMA journeys where like I've gone through this beautiful, amazing psychotherapeutic process. And then, but I still got so much energy by four in the morning. So I'm like, well, I'll just go into my gym and start lifting weights. And interesting. I've never done that. Interesting. Yeah. Um, So, but to, to your question, like, Um, so, so training and working out for me is really important because I'm a physical being like I, that's been my whole journey. Like I need to be physical in my body. Um, and then, you know, there's like meditation. Um, I don't need to sit and meditate so much anymore because I've been doing it all my life, but I need to drop in. And that, that for me is the key to it all. I just need to feel dropped in to my own energy field, to my own my own psyche my own body and um you know then it's like going doing cold cold water therapy sauna just basic like maintenance um and in diet and in hydration like i find for me like the like i need to stay on a particular regimen not because i quote unquote need to but because i know that for me my pursuit is my own human potential yeah I'm not obsessed with it the way I was before. I've I've learned to let go of like this like obsession around it. Um, but I need I, like hydration. Water quality is like absolutely non-negotiable. Food organic, um, mostly liquids most of the time. Staying light but nourished. Um, the like very basic like self care is critical. And I know if I if I go off. Off that that kind of that, that structure, it's not that I feel bad, like physically. It's there's something in me that knows that I'm I'm going off the path.
0: It's almost like self-harm when yeah. you have the visceral awareness of it. And I talk with Graham about this all the time, but it's like the more you get familiar with that taste of that clarity of consciousness that's able Mm -hmm. to happen Mm -hmm. when you hydrate properly, you work out, you eat clean, you are in integrity with all of your primary relationships. Yes. You choose to use your phone. It doesn't use you. You get outside, you have sunlight. Like Mm -hmm. as as you start to feel what it feels like with the quality of your consciousness, when all those things come together the double-edged sword of that is you become so sensitive Mm -hmm, and acutely mm -hmm, aware mm -hmm. at the, it now takes less to feel like more to be off the mark. Whereas when I was 18 and I only knew poisonous food, I only knew tap water. I never got sun. I didn't know how to be honest with anyone around me. Mm. I didn't know how to do deep work. (laughs) I didn't know how to manage my awareness Mm -hmm. that I could fucking eat anything and say anything. And I was so off that I couldn't really feel that I was further off. And it's this interesting thing that I feel now where like it is now a cliche, comically significant detriment. If I Mm -hmm. choose, like if I order ice cream Mm
1: -hmm. at
0: 9 Mm PM with Uber eats, like, I'm now at a, I'm in a quote unquote timeline Mm -hmm. where I can't do that. And it not be like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. And it's not out of like, it's not out of strength. Like I'm at the point now where the momentum is such where it's actually out of weakness Mm -hmm. because like, (laughs) I tell this to Caitlin all the time, but like, she is so much more tough than me psychologically Mm. because of what she's able to Mm. keep her peace through enduring Mm. Mm. in her nervous system. And I'm such, it's it's really interesting. I do hard shit Mm -hmm. because on some level I'm soft in the sense of how uncomfortable I'll, I'll get when I'm not clean and clear. And the really interesting initiations for me in the last year have been like consciously choosing um, intense, small periods where it's like, I'm going to purposefully take away all the things I like and just be in the muck, you know? And like what that looks like on the outside is... uh, I'm going to go to a party and drink and stay up all night and do MDMA, you know, and have Uh sex as Uh the sunrise Uh and then get two hours of sleep. Uh Like for me, it's like, I'm going to make 20 conscious choices that I know don't resonate with the part of me that likes to be like a laser. Mm -hmm. And it's also Mm -hmm. why I know that Burning Man will probably be harder for me than ayahuasca and I'm going this year for the first time. So
1: I I totally resonate with all that. It's like, <clears throat> yeah, I'm, I'm not like, it's interesting because I have been so regimented as an athlete, but I also feel like I lived that life fully too. Yeah. You know, so it's like, I, I've, I've taken that blueprint, but it's, it's different my life now is different like i'm not training to be this physical athlete that my value is based on performance and i'm not really trying to perform either and i feel like that's just a product of me coming arriving at myself arriving into myself my work my profession my confidence in in what i do and who i am as a human being um so i i see the i see the benefit in allowing myself to have a variety of different experiences, but there's also like an interesting, like, there's a structure to it. It's almost like I'm just tuning into the structure that life is guiding me into creating for this next iteration of my for life, sure. um, which does involve, which has and does involve um, a lot of psychedelic journeys. Um, I do not say so much now, but it did involve a lot of it. And my my psychedelic endeavors, although I've done, you know, plenty of recreational journeys like MDMA or microdosing at like music events, like even in those experiences, I'm doing deep work. I have never done any psychotropic medicines where I am. I may be having the best time of my life, but I'm also like there's times where I'm like, I'm processing and I'm alchemizing energy and I'm I'm dancing and moving in a way that's activating like you know, something genetically in me, like I'm, 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 that's a, that's a container where I can liberate that energy in a space. That's fun. It's, it's entertaining. It's, it's communal. Um, which is a recent thing for me, you know, where I actually didn't really have that until actually coming here to Austin. Funny enough, I was never in the festival scene. I had plenty of friends that did Burning man. I I never really was in it. It wasn't until I came here to Austin and I was and I started um exploring that more and realizing like, whoa, there's a part of me that's like turning on like this this mystic, psychedelic, psychonautical explorer. And it's actually bringing the martial artist, like my nervous system mm. is getting entrained in a way. It's kind of re-enlivening my body in a way that I think went kind of dormant through my intellectual pursuits. Yeah, really interesting thing to that I feel that I see is
0: some weird stuff has happened in the last like three years where, um, two people outside of the quote unquote spiritual community, the spiritual community has now been like politicized. Yeah. And like, it's, it's seen by the outside as like right winged in this really interesting That's way. Very, yeah,
1: yeah, I know exactly what you mean.
0: And mm-hmm. um, I think because there's a very interesting overlap in like, uh, mm-hmm. I want to be free to choose what I do with my consciousness, that stemmed from the psychedelic renaissance mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that now as you know, things have played out with the vaccine, the way that they have played yes. out, that this weird cross streaming of like, the people who think they're fighting against the quote unquote alt-right, have now looked at the spiritual community mm-hmm. and feel mm-hmm. like they're now fighting yeah. where the quote unquote alt right is hiding and that there's been this like uh in bad faith critique of a lot of the people that you and I know um and a bad faith critique of any of the things that they do or teach
1: yeah
0: and there's mm. been this Like a part of the spiritual community for, you know, like in the US for like the last 50 years has been festivals.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But
0: the technology of a festival is ancient.
1: Totally, There are
0: all sorts of historical records of different cultures using specifically music and dance as a replacement for war, Mm -hmm. as a replacement for violence, Mm -hmm. as a way to move grief as a way to bind the community mm-hmm. together before a, like a hard winner or before going to war as a group. And it's because there seems to be some archetypical and fundamental um you know like you don't know how much you need healthy water until you taste until it yourself yeah.
1: you don't know you're in a healthy relationship until what it feels like until you're in one
0: right and so there's all of these examples and i think that there's something about being in a group of humans who are unconsciously regulating their hearts to the frequency of whatever the dominant drum beat is mm. and then moving together that clicks something on that is fundamentally healing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like because Fit for Service is hosting Arcadia, I get to see some of the uh I think I'm fighting the alt-right by critiquing what it is that's being done here. Mm. That um there's there's a couple of weird things. One is there seems to be an echo of the like Puritan version of Christianity where yeah. anything that is sensually nourishing Mm -hmm. equals ungodly. Mm -hmm. So that's one like judgment thread. The other one is um, it's fundamentally racist, but it's like these rich white people are doing this thing with their privilege and they're wasting all these things. But it's, it's a, it is a fundamentally race based critique. And we live in a very interesting time where uh, it's, culturally risky to be a white person claiming that if someone else is being derogatory towards white people that they're being racist like it's almost like you're not allowed to point that out Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which seems to be a very interesting thing yeah but um the the way that i see it is most of us most of the time are sick we're in pain we're confused we're stressed and we're angry And I want to help. Mm -hmm. And like the festival as an archetype. Yeah. Because to the outside group that think that they're fighting the alt-right, they see it merged with the spiritual community. They're creating this thing where it's like, I'm not ever going to taste that medicine because it's, 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 connected to the worst possible thing that humans can be because that's what i think this group is yeah and it's like you know i have a dream that the people who i go read you know they're Mm -hmm. vicious like the type of things that if you said to someone's face you all would fight
1: Mm.
0: and the thing is is that you probably wouldn't say it to their face like exactly The people who I read those things from, I I truly dream that they're with me in the dance and that they get to feel what it feels like to like, like most people who are angry online, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. my intuition is that the the way it feels in their body is it's like there's someone in their psyche that they have to protect themselves from who's who's evil or mean and it's not safe for them to truly be vulnerable and to like like i'm so tired
1: Mm, you know mm -hmm. like the
0: person who's always fighting you know like the part behind the warrior that's exhausted Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it's like i wish that they got to feel and if they do then i'm truly happy for them and that I hope that they get it more, where they get to feel what it feels like to be in a group of people where no politicking is happening. No story-making about other people are happening. We are not gathering in anger. We are not gathering. Mm, mm -hmm. I I do think it can be beautiful to gather in grief, to grieve as a group, but that I hope that everyone gets the opportunity to feel in this life what it feels like to completely lose yourself to a drumbeat, mm-hmm. whatever that drumbeat is, mm-hmm. with a group of people that you feel 100% safe around for you to express both physically and through your voice in whatever way needs to be expressed. And the, I've, I've been able to do fit for service long enough where I see like people's musculature holding patterns at the beginning of the first day. And then I see what their muscular patterns Mm -hmm. are at the end of the last day. And like, like, I wanted to be a professor. I wanted to publish journal articles and see my citation score go up, blah, blah, blah. Like none of that is anywhere as rewarding as, um, seeing people go through a container that you help create that on the other side of it, mm-hmm. you, you can tell they love themselves more. They're going to go out into the world and be kinder than they were before. And they believe in life, you know, like mm-hmm. one of the things mm-hmm. that I think is super important for our time is retraining what people's instincts are about the other. I think because of the rise of social media most of us have this intuitional flinch that if someone looks like the other especially like the quote unquote other that I hate on Instagram mm-hmm. that Instagram mm-hmm. learns to feed back to me all yep. the time I assume that they're dangerous evil manipulative um bad faith actors trying to hurt me just I'm just assuming the worst about the other and the really what I think the coolest thing is about creating containers where you bring people together who don't know each other is you get to retrain how people default to the other.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that um, dancing in a group, as, mm-hmm. as simple as it sounds, is one of yeah. the greatest ways to... Uh, it's one of the greatest technologies that can be open-sourced shared for free that could go quote unquote viral that could help millions of people over the course of a year. If, if it became a thing and it's like, I read pretty vicious shit, you know, about how it's, uh, judged frequently, Mm -hmm.
1: you know, Mm -hmm. it's yeah. I mean, there's so much in there and it's, we're living in, a reemergence of the Renaissance era. we in our version of probably the, the greatest Renaissance era of all time, because we have never, we've never had a fraction of the accessibility to information perspectives, media, people of all spectrums of life, race, creed color. Um, I mean, it's, yeah it's like we 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 have so much accessibility to information and abundance of basically everything that people have so much time on their hands which is which is never never a thing before just the fact that I'd make this point all the time when I was in the diet community, because you have people that are just like going at each other, and and all this, you know, the vegans and the meat eaters, and then like within the vegan community, there's all these subsets and like these dietary camps, and people are just arguing about it. And I'd be looking at this, like, hmm. do you guys realize that the ability to choose your diet is a recent thing? Like, it's actually only a recent thing that you could even choose your diet. And and I mean, if you want to be like vegan or vegetarian. 50, 60 years ago, you had a very few options to choose from. Like we have so much opulent abundance that we almost don't even know what to do with ourselves. And, and that's why it keeps coming back to like minimalism and distilling and coming back to like the base, the base elements and necessities. Um, But to, but to your point about like community, communion, dancing, the, 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 the festival, environment like that has been the most healing thing for me just as healing as going into ayahuasca ceremonies and and in my ceremonies the thing that's most powerful is the ikaros, is the carrier wave of the music and the, the shaman and their team and the energy behind it and how that carries the experience forward um yeah, there's so much that can be said. I just, I'll just give you a nod on that, and and, <laughs> to, and everyone listening, like that—that's where we find ourselves. And here's what's coming up too. And this is like we're all craving authenticity. We're craving the real because with these digitized, drugified technologies, we've become neuro-linked into these alternate virtual realities, and the brain doesn't have a context for what's real and not real chemically speaking and through the dopamine system we can we can be having a text-based interaction with someone that we don't even know and experiencing it somatically as if that's a really happening in front of us we can, that's someone in our tribe that's someone saying that that's thing right to us that's right and we will, we can say things to other people that we would never say in person because empathetically we wouldn't be able to say those things. And those things have actual consequences. Yeah.
0: And there's a dynamic to it where there's some part of your psyche is registering. This is being said in a way that is recorded and can be seen by all. Right. So, like, it's not like a person, like, it's, I think it's hard for us to connect to, but if I say a thing to you, it's already evaporated. Like it'll, it's echo and it's interpretation will stay in my mind and maybe yours, but it's not writing Mm -hmm. is a revolution because it can immortalize a thought. Mm -hmm. And like social media is like, someone can say a thing to you that no human would ever have said it to, said that type of thing to you if they had to say it to you in person. And they're saying it in a way where it's immortalized. It it at least feels that way, mm-hmm. and it's immortalized in a way where you know that it can be seen by everyone else who knows you, right? Right. And it's just like, uh, but we're at our motherfucking time limit. This has gone oh, by wow. super fucking fast. Um, we we've just done like three and a half hours total.
1: Yeah. So yeah. this was our deep work for the day.
0: This was dope. Yeah. I actually had a deep work session before this, so I'm exhausted now. Um, <laughs> Uh, where can people connect with you if they would like to continue the yep. vibe? And just overall, thank you. You have a phenomenal story. I know that we only mm-hmm. got to touch the surface of it, but this has been dope. So where can Thanks, people brother. find you?
1: Um, you could, my current website is hhphealth.com. Um, you can find me on Instagram, Ronnie Landis, Facebook. I have a podcast as well, which we just did an interview with Eric for which will be up very soon. And um, if you are interested in the book, you can go to theaddictionfreelifestyle.com. The book's called The Addiction-Free Lifestyle. Um, Yeah, just Instagram, social media, podcast. Just type, type in Ronnie Landis. Thank you for coming on, brother. Thanks, brother.